Welcome back to Dracop Diaries and for our big celebration, which 50 episodes. To make it a little bit more special, we are just about to play some interesting and favourite pieces of looking back really over the last few years, aren't we? Ron? Yeah, they're the ones I think that people in the team have picked out because we've got a team of people, we'll talk to them during the course of this. And I think uh, they're, hopefully they're ones that other people will enjoy as well. But tell me, Fertiggy, let's just go back a little bit and just, how did it all start for you? What was the big idea behind it? Oh, look at you in the interviewing seat suddenly. <laughs> I'll tell you my big idea, thank you very much for asking. No, seriously, because of my diagnosis of, of a sight loss and because I loved my community and because I'd had some experience in broadcasting in my professional career, I had always wanted to make an audible series from one community, also pretty well from one postcode. And we live in the parish of Draycott and Rodney Stoke. Actually, I think it's the other way around. I think it's Rodney Stoke and Draycott. Therefore, it seemed just a perfect, perfect canvas for me to do that. And I knew of you, I knew in the village that you had some very good sound skills and and you what's your past career well i've worked in engineering right, for yeah. so many years lots of dealings with amplifiers and making files and things not so much recording but i started doing some recording with mendit players and you obviously needed someone to do this and must have talked to somebody and they suggested my name and then you decided to ring me from, from tesco <laughs> car park and said can you add some music on to the end and the beginning of a, of a recording for a podcast. I thought, yes, I can do that. What he didn't say, of course, was the fact that it was a 45-minute recording and that also needed cutting down to something like 30 minutes. <laughs> but that was the first one, and we, we did well with it. Well, we, we did, did well do well with, with it. it. And I think it, it was a good one for our first one. OK, so you're selecting the first one. Yes, so the first one, I think, should be the dying David Ginger, the sheep farmers, who was the first one you presented me with. I did. I have to say, Rob, every time I listen to it now, I cringe because it was the first one I'd done as a sort of presenter and I sound like a rabbit on acid. OK, well, I think it's a good challenge for both of us, so let's listen to it. Two, two questions in a quite succinct way, what would be categorised for you as a low moment and what would be categorised as a really great moment? Low moment would have mm. been at foot and mouth Yeah, I was when thinking. we were lambing ewes in six inches of water in a field <laughs> because we couldn't move them, we weren't allowed to. So they were trying to lamb in soaking yes. work conditions. And then we, in the end, I think we were one of the first in Somerset to get permission to move them back to the farm. And they were literally lambing as they were going up the tailboard in the lorry. It was awful. I had one student, she said, what can I do? I said, just follow me and keep me smiling. And that night, bless her, she came in and cooked the supper, found a bottle of wine in the cupboard and opened it. And I was not a happy girl that day. So this was one particular day? Yes. Because it was obviously over a certain amount of time, and and it was to do with moving them, was it? Yes. No, you you couldn't move them. Mm, 2001, wasn't it? Yeah, I think Mm. foot and mouth, yeah. It was lambing time, and everything was stopped. You couldn't move any animals at all anywhere. Okay. So if they were in that field five miles away, they had to stay there Mm -hmm. until the powers that be, DEFRA, the animal health people, 
he said, well, the, the foot and mouth died down, or you could, he gave you a licence, special licence, to bring them home if it was... A... I virtually spent a whole day on the phone to Deborah the day before. Many tears were shed that day, and eventually I did get a licence. <laughs> so, tell me about High. I don't know, we, we've just recently scanned our in-lab use, haven't we? Yes. Which all very went well, and as we said before, we breed all our own replacements. And one thing I didn't mention about breeding or replacements, they know the farm. Oh, do they? We, yeah. We've got land in you know, probably three places, and so we have to move the sheep about quite a bit, sort of three blocks of land. And one of the things, we bring them up through the village. We bring them up you know, reasonably frequently when they've got to be sh- shorn or various reasons. And basically, Di and I, we could just... Open the gate. They know where they're going. <laughs> I, I know we have to be there with them because of the traffic, but if there wasn't any traffic, they would just come straight up from Rodney Stoke Moor, which is what, probably three miles, yeah. all the way up, all the way up through Rodney Stoke, across the main road, and into the farm. Really? Yeah, yes. because they, they're virtually, you've heard of probably what, hill sheep, where they have yeah. on the hills with yeah. no fences. Yeah. The sheep know their areas. Yeah. Well, this is the... A similar similar thing. Our sheep know all their fields and where they've got to go. Yeah. But that must be such a nice sense for the oh, two. It's quite a nice they, feeling. Because they want to come home. They, yeah. That's where they want they to know. go. Jeff, how are you? Yeah, feeling well today. Okay. Good. You're one of our very esteemed editors and sound recordists. And one of your roles, as well as being one of the editors, is you come out with me and, and help me with the recording. I'm giving every member of the team the opportunity to look back at the 50 episodes and pick out a clip that they most enjoyed from the series so far. So, Jeff, you get first pick. What would it be? Oh, I think we have a lovely pub in Draycott, um, which has a, a long 200-year-old history. And uh, you must often, often think of what it was like in the past with the, the little old steam train coming past, the steam train stopping for water and everybody else on the train stopping for refreshment as well. And it turns out that there is some history. And there was the story of the famous ghosts which worried me a little bit, but there is some history in the pub. And so every time you go there, you've got to listen out for the, for the, the strawberry special ghost. We do have an article hanging on the wall here that a lot of visitors love to read. And it tells of the, the old train and ghost. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, there's, there are ghosts, there are ghosts? in this pub. Wow. A lot of them believe it's ghosts from years ago, the people who used to ride the train and still getting off the train coming into the pub. No. Have you ever had any sense of this? Well, the ghosts that I experience around here, they do things that's very unexplainable, but it's just annoying. It's not frightening. It's just really annoying. For example, just a couple weeks ago, I woke up on the top of my dresser, half of my items were shoved onto the floor. The other half was perfectly fine. Now, I was sleeping right next to it. I never heard anything. You can't um, have turned over and knocked it. It was on top of a dresser in the room. Another example is there's a, a shelf in the kitchen that's probably about nine feet high where we store little straw baskets of various sizes. We came down one morning and those baskets had been neatly arranged by side and put back up onto the shelf. 
And there's no way it would be somebody here in the pub, you know, one of one of the no. wonderful team who, who works here who would have moved those about. This happened overnight while the pub was locked down, alarms on. And has anybody else ever said to you they've seen somebody or do, is it supposed to be a man or a woman or? I think it's a combination of the regulars past and again, some of the people that used to come in off the train. Mick seems to believe that it could be some of the old previous landlords and landladies. Uh, he said that there was one that did actually die in this building in what is now our meeting room. So he, he tends to think it's a, a previous landlord. I don't know. Well, what an extraordinary thing. The room that I have my fish and chips in, which is the meeting room normally on a Friday, somebody might have passed away. Oh, rugby. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> it's great, though, to think, isn't it? Passengers and landlords and landladies past, you know, going backwards and forwards and having a drink, and now they've gone into the spirit world, literally. Excuse the pun. Anyway, what happens next? I think I'd like to pick the next one, which would be Chris and Andrew Seeger. They run the fruit and veg stall up on the on the main Wells Road. And they are also strawberry farmers. And Andrew, father and son, as I said, the father, he once apparently saw um, a rather interesting wild thing. So I had to ask the question. You once told me, but you maybe I don't know. Maybe I'd had a cider, but you once told me you think you saw, or uh, you're sure you saw, yes. the beast of Bob Minmore. Yes, we were. There was about five of us working in the field just over there, and there was a big black cat in the field opposite. And Literally we, opposite where we are yeah, here, right, the fruit yeah, store. Yes, up in Mr. Lucas's ground, it was then. And we all looked up and said, wow, look at that. And it was seen at previous as well. It crossed them. And Eric Reed seen it in the village. Well, on the same day? Was this the no, same sighting? No, no, not the same day. It would have been several, several, probably a couple of months in Crosscombe. And then later, Eric seen it the other end of the village. But we all looked up, and I rushed off to get my camera, and I, of course, didn't have a good camera that could zoom in, and tried to get where it was to, and it crashed through the bushes and jumped through some ivy, and I clicked a couple of times, but unfortunately not good enough. But a lot of people that was working, or at least five people working in the field, actually saw it, so I wasn't seeing things. <laughs> you are, you are, I drank too much cider that day, though. No. That's right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it was quite, it was quite interesting, and it, I didn't see it again. It was only the once, and that was it. Well, listen to that, honestly, Robert. I think you should check your garden. <laughs> <laughs> they were wonderful, weren't they? they yes, were they were really good. Such a great story. I'd love to see the Beast of Bombay more. But you know what, Rob? When I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know, what we were saying earlier about the complexities of learning how to record it and edit it. That we thought was going to be our major challenge. What we hadn't expected was the dreaded COVID. Yes, that put the mockers on it, really, as far as going out and talking to people, which is what you, you do well. So, of course, the next challenge then was for us to think, how are we going to make these recordings? We had a choice of using something like Skype or the telephone. Or of course, Zoom was the thing that everyone was talking about at the time. 
So I then had to think, right, we can do it over, over one of those, but you need to know how to do it. So we spent a bit of time working you were very on that. Patient. And to be honest, it worked out well in the end. It did work out very well because you taught me by, I mean, I've got various magnifiers and things that speak to me on my computer. And so we were sharing screens as well. Yes. And you taught me how to do it, which was extraordinary. And it did work out very well. But so even uh, so simply linking from Skype to a telephone call was the simplest way of doing it. It was. And that worked brilliantly. And then what we were recording became slightly different in the way that, we started making during COVID sort of smaller pieces, didn't we, that were kind of informative to what was going on around that was COVID. Drake Diary documentaries to let people know what's going on. And of course, with COVID as well, that became um, a very much a big topic of the time. So when we, we, we talked to people, how it affected people in the community, how um, the shop was being affected, and of course, how it affected people with their generosity. And, of course, the generosity went back then to the food bank, the shop. Yes. They collected for the food bank. But where does it go? And what do they do with it? And we did a recording talking to the lady who actually works well, in the food, the food bank. She runs yeah, the she food runs bank. She runs the food bank. Cheddar. Yeah, good idea. I think that one is a very good example of the strange and the good coming together. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Let's just go with that one, shall we? Okay. Oh, there's a good one. Generosity of people has been fantastic, I have to say. And what is the most unusual item that has ever been bought to, or you have found that has been donated to the food bank? We've had some rare things that uh, I did notice, very, very kind, but notice some hair dye um, that Ooh. somebody gave us. Uh, oh, I thought that was unusual. Some weird sort of meats from France, and I don't think we could even read the label. Uh, interestingly, in the container, one one week in Sainsbury's, we had some very useful KY jelly. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, and then a few weeks later, we had some condoms in there. So maybe somebody had been ditched in their relationship and didn't need any of this stuff. I don't know. So that was quite that was quite an unusual um, hair removal cream. I suppose if you get hairy legs during the COVID time, uh, some random things. I would say we laugh at some of the stuff. And what is bizarre is some people halfway through um, a packet of something decide they don't like it, then put it in the container. I don't think we can do anything with that. <laughs> You know, I'm conjuring up a picture here, and I, I think we can be humorous in dark times, of somebody with terrible roots, but is, <laughs> but is having lots of safe sex. Yeah. Uh, and I think, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're supposed, baby to, boom. And we're supposed to take exercise at least once a day. So this is a good thing. This is your second pick of your favourite episode segment. Well, we were, we were privileged to be able to interview Thea Oliver shortly after she had been ordained, who gave us a full description of the, the life of a newly ordained priest. When she was ordained, it was in the first lockdown, and this meant that all the clergy, including the bishop, was wearing masks. And apparently the, uh, they, they looked rather menacing in, the, in, in that sort of garb. Now, theatre, obviously, with a priest, you would normally associate that with being uh, wearing a dog collar, I mean, there are occasions when, when, when people are out and about or when Thea was out and about when she wasn't wearing it and had to change rather quickly if the occasion arose. 
and we were rather intrigued by the uh, the dog collar and the way it all was put together. And, and I think Theo will now describe a little bit more about that. Coming back to your clerical collar, I don't yes. want you to think I'm obsessed. I'm very jealous of it, <laughs> but I'm not obsessed by it. because you're a fellow to... dog lover, you see. You, just, you think of it as a dog collar. And I, I mean, I'm a dog lover, so that's what's probably why I've done this, isn't it? More? I want to look like Ada more than... No. <laughs> I don't know that I want to look like Jackie, because that would mean wearing a full guide dog That's harness, true. which is quite a lot to wear, actually. Yeah. It's quite heavy, but it's a, a good thought. But <laughs> what made me laugh, though, Theo, when I um, I think I was asking you, well, you tell me, because it's not as simple as just putting on a dog collar, is it? There are various ways of wearing it. I mean, how, how do you put it on? How does it work? Well, there are shirts. I, I, own, I own shirts that you have a, just a little bit of plastic. It used to be, people used to say it was a bit of fairy liquid bottle, but of course now fairy liquid bottles are... Oh, so yeah. it doesn't go all the way round, it's just... No, some, some oh, do, but this, I know this one, is, I'll take it out and show you. It's just a small piece of plastic, okay, I'm about six in, inches I'm long. I'm looking at, through a very hazy yeah. size, about a six inch... Six yes, you inches. can hold it if you like. I'm going to hold it. Oh, it's quite crispy, it's unpleasantly plastic. <laughs> Yeah, wow. and so that goes into the shirt. And so I have I have a number of shirts like that, different colours. But I also, of course, if you need to be, if you're wearing, if I'm wearing something else, um, and I just want to quickly put a dog collar on, um, put my clever collar on, I will wear my crop top. Now, I'm worried about this crop top. <laughs> when you first told me about this, you said, oh, yes, Diggy, don't worry. Um, it's not that uncomfortable to wear because I wear this crop top. I had visions of you going around the village in some sort of crop top with your tummy showing, <laughs> not wearing your clever collar. No. This is clearly not true. No, no, it's basically, it's, it's made of bamboo, the one that I've got. So it's a bit like a sort of a sweatshirt no, t-shirty type material, which has the collar at the top. And you can just slip it on underneath. So if I'm wearing a, a dress or a, a polo shirt or something like that, then it just immediately makes it look like a clerical outfit. Um, okay. And so it's a, a maybe it's cheating. I don't think it's cheating. I don't think it's cheating. No. It's probably more comfortable. It is much more comfortable. I'm than... feeling I've still got yeah. this clerical collar bit in my hand. Yeah. I mean, that to me, I think if you were talking to somebody, you got excited. That might just pop out and take somebody's eye out. It, it, I suppose potentially it could, but um, yeah. We'll be careful. <laughs> Kaylee, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, a very warm welcome and thank you for being part of the team and indeed the celebration of reaching our 50th episode. Yes, and thank you for the opportunity. Not at all. How long have you been on the Draycott Diaries team? Quite a few years now. Nearly, ne nearly from the beginning, should I say? I think so. Jeff and I were working out, he's been with us three years, so you've definitely been with us three years. And Kayleigh, you do our social media, don't you? And basically, you keep us completely in line on all our platforms. That's right. Yeah. So anything that's um, visually pleasing is uh, is down to me. Um, and yeah, social media content. Well, fantastic. And we we couldn't do it without you. So thank you, Kaylee. Now, Kaylee, as a treasured member of the team, you get to pick your favourite clip. What would you like to hear again? Oh, this is very exciting. Of course, I'd like to hear again our very own postman hat bog snorkeling. And why particularly? Just because it's fun. And he is a lovely, lovely guy. And it's just a story that we have to all relive again. Great. Well, let's listen to it right now. I'm not going to let you go until I ask you this, West, this question. 
you are a bog snorkeler. Now, oh, yes. wait for it. Why? There's country file. I think it's country file's fault. Is it country file's fault? You blame it on the BBC. I, I have to. Yeah, de- de- definitely the BBC. Yeah. But I saw a program which contains snippets of these fools pottering around in a bog in a field in the middle of nowhere. And I thought to myself, that looks brilliant. I have to have a go at that. And so um, I discovered that they have the annual World Bog Snorkeling Championships in a bog in a field in Wales every year. They do? I've got two friends going to going to it this year. I, I, I believe I, I know them. <laughs> Are they participating or spectating? Well, they're... I'm trying very hard to Knowing them, them both to very well, and I'm not going to name names because I love them both dearly. Good. I think they're going as spectators, but knowing them both very well as well, I think when they've had a drink, they may well become participants. Good. I, I, I happen to know who they are, but as you've said, yeah. they shall remain nameless f- for now. Yeah. But I'm uh, trying very hard to encourage them to don wetsuits and uh, Yeah, what do you wear for this? The event itself is a bog or a ditch, if you will, is dug, okay. a trench in, in a field. Okay. And the water from the surrounding field fills that up um, with whatever is in the field okay. as well. So it makes it uh, quite mucky and also very cold because it takes place over the bank holiday in August, which is not the warmest of times. Mm-hmm. The course is um, 120 yards, 60 yards one way and then 60 yards back. And you are not allowed to use any conventional swimming strokes. And you have to have flippers, a mask and snorkel. Uh, Whatever else that you decide to wear in between is entirely up to you. And I've seen anything from uh, sharks and camels to um, the 118 twins with the Oh, uh, yeah, Very yeah. great wigs. Okay, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a bit like the marathon, people don done on yes, different things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and some of the more the more horrifying things, like those ridiculous Borat, Mankini oh, kind God, of affairs, which yeah. um, they're not for the faint of heart. No, they're not. And so all, all of these people from all around the, around the world, quite literally, um, descend upon this bog. Yeah. It's so, so you say you're not allowed to use swimming strokes? Not conventional swimming not strokes. conventional. So do you walk along then? It's about three foot deep. Oh, okay. And the, the, technique for, <laughs> the technique for the pros, if you will, is to stretch the arms out as far as you can in front of you and kick like mad. So you are swimming, your feet do leave the bottom, Yes, yes, yes absolutely. You're kind of torpedoing along. And are you getting a face full of poo? Uh... Well, that, that's where the, the snorkel comes in handy, the snorkel and <laughs> of mask. Of course. Yes. Bog snorkeling. Yes. I've missed that, I've yeah. missed that word, haven't I? You have to have a mask and snorkel. So, so keep... You can't see much, can you? <laughs> it keeps Ian, up. can you play tennis or something? Or, or, <laughs> or swim in the leisure centre at Kings of Wessex? Something fresh and nice and manly. It, it, it wouldn't be nearly as mad and it wouldn't be nearly as no, much fun. I, I see that. There are enough wonderfully mad things that the British do. Yeah. Um, which should never be stopped. Do you wear your hat? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you do? Yes. You wear your hat while you're bog snorkeling? I was interviewed by BBC Wales last oh. time I won the World Over 50s title. Oh, you are? So you are a champion? Uh, yes. So you're the bog snorkeling champion of which year? What are we busy with? 2019, 2017. Are you going to try and keep your title this year? I went back last year yeah. in 2018 to, to keep the title. And um, this sounds awfully complicated, but uh, I have a specialist snorkel for the occasion. <laughs> of course you Which, have a specialist Of course, snorkel. who wouldn't? Yeah. And, uh, I have one I, in my bag. Not that I'm serious about this at oh, all. Oh, okay. 
And um, I have a pair of nose plugs which need mm. to be used as well. And out of the goodness of my heart, I loaned snorkel and nose plugs to a fellow competitor no, last year. Yeah. And um, she lost the nose plugs <gasps> in the water. And that was what makes the thing function. So I had to scramble around and borrow some nose plugs from somewhere else, uh, which I did. Oh. And off I went. But unfortunately, um, I'm blessed with something of a nose. And the plugs that I borrowed were too small. And, and came off at about the halfway mark, so I ended up sniffing in water and other unpleasant things and choking and spluttering. So yeah. ended up finishing Just fourth instead of first. So unpleasant. It was. It was most unpleasant. Is there a prize money? No, not at all. So there's no really impetus to do it. There's you, no. You, you get um, a, a little medal in the shape of a frog. A frog, a sort of <laughs> muddy frog. Do you? Do you? I mean, so it's not. You don't you don't get anything except for a medal and a trophy. Oh, you get a trophy. You missed out the trophy. If you win, yes, I have a little trophy which oh. is um, three or four pieces of wood which I think is glued and assembled together um, <laughs> with a little stand saying this is the World Bog Snorkeling Champion Trophy oh, and a little frog with a snorkel and flippers. Oh. Do you know I'm welling up thinking about that? It's a very emotional thing, isn't it's it? It's very emotionally, and I might just have to take a minute <laughs> just to digest this whole bog snorkeling. Oh, I want a wooden frog and snorkel. Mind you, I'm not prepared to go through what Ian went through. Oh, what a great story. I just cry with laughter every time I hear that. So coming up next, slightly different. This was a conversation I had with the wonderful Dr Dingley. He used to live, well, I say used to live, he's lived all around the world. But one of the main places he lived and worked was Borneo. He was an eye doctor, had an extraordinary history. One of the things that we were talking about was um, not only that how he managed to get to people in faraway places to do extraordinary eye operations, but how he coped with the wildlife in the area. There's a lovely story I, I read, and uh, well, one is slightly not so lovely, but there was a there, there was an orangutan that you became quite close to, Dr Dingley, and resulted in, I believe, an operation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, he was an idiot <laughs> who um, made his enjoyment in chasing other orangutans around and generally getting in the way. And one day he climbed up a tree, which happened to be an electric pole, and <laughs> got electrocuted at the top and fell down with a big bump and landed with cataracts. <laughs> so um, he was blind and being teased enormously by his previous victims, victims of the blind. <laughs> and um, I saw him and I agreed to operate. We operated on him, took his cataracts out, uh, which was quite fun, and then uh, put him in a box so that his hands couldn't reach his eyes for a week or two. And we um, let him loose again. Good as new. He was yes. back to full fitness. So Hugh, my brother, as very, very valuable member of our team, you get to choose your favourite segment, because as you know, we've recorded 50 episodes. Which one would you like to hear again? Well, I think probably um, the la the latest one that you did, which was on the um, the Draycott pilot, John Connor. Uh, just a little bit of background. I'm at 
obsessed by flying <laughs> and anything and I'm a member of the Bristol Flight Simulation Group and we meet on Thursday nights and jump into our Boeings and fly around the world and um, have a jolly good time. So anything to do with flying, as you know, my sister, I've always loved anything to do with flying. And it was fascinating listening to John talking about particularly his airline work, because that was important. But that's what, what I'm keen on. But also the horrendous story he told about the near miss that he had on training. I think it's called the, the something loop in Wales. I think they practice on. And evidently, at one point, it was a two way system. Um, and now they've made it one way. And um, he had a very, very near miss with another phantom coming the other way with a probably combined speed of about over a thousand miles an hour. So I love that one. Thank you. OK, oh, Hugh, sorry. it is yours. We shall listen to it right now. And lastly, because I know it's just such a good story. Tell me about that time again when you were training. So you, I mean, you weren't training. You were training a rookie pilot. You were coming towards a hill somewhere. Yes. like I mean, for, for want of a better person, somewhere like Nyland Hill. Well, it's it, it's a, like a ridge, like okay. like the Mendips, yeah, really, yeah, 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 yeah. coming up over the levels of the Mendips. Yeah. And we used to teach the people, instead of climbing up so that you arrived at the top of the hill still climbing, yeah. which means you'd be then very visible to any forces the other side, you climbed up beforehand, and to stop the aircraft from physically going up, you rolled it inverted and then pulled down. So you actually went over the top of the ridge inverted. Well, you're looking, you're with your hand, John. Does that mean upside down? Upside down, down right, yes, okay. literally upside down. Unfortunately, on the hill we chose, there was an aeroplane coming the other way doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> Which, of course, we didn't see. And that was in the days when low-level flying was, there was areas open to low flying and there wasn't a one-way system. But, uh, the one-way system did evolve. Okay. So that was nobody's fault? No, such. nobody's fault. It was just aviation risk. But how do you... You know, when you're upside down going at that kind of speed, how mm. do you even know that happened? Uh, well, you don't until you go... And then you go... Oh, what, what was, was that? that? <laughs> was it a seagull or was it, in fact, another item? Yes. Uh, oh, wow. Yes. Oh, well, I'm still looking at you, John, so something must have gone right then because it oh, obviously yes. got back. Yes. One of the things, Hugh, I wanted to say to you from the heart, you have been so important to the whole production because right at the beginning when I said to you I had this idea of a podcast, I asked you whether you might consider because you are a composer, a writer, an actor and so many other things and you kindly said that you would arrange a piece of music for me which is now the well-known and well-loved Draycott Diaries music. And when you gave it to me, the gift was the fact that I haven't recorded anything. So when I wanted to interview somebody, I had no way of telling them what it is that I wanted to do or explaining it so they understood. But as soon as I played them the music, they instantly got where I was going from. So that theme music was so and has continued to be vital to the whole process of Drake Art Diaries. But... There's a bit of a story behind it, Hugh, isn't there? I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I think coincidentally, when you said you, you were looking for a piece of theme music for the show, I kind of thought, well, Draycott Diaries, it's probably going to be quite a nice country, upbeat sort of uh, stories. Perhaps, perhaps not all happy, but generally so. 
perhaps a little bit quirky. And I was actually playing around with a piece of music by Bach, which I think, if I pronounce this right, is called Solfeggietto. I can't remember what key it was in, C minor, I think. And I was playing around with that. And I thought, well, that's quite nice. It's quite quirky, but it's in a minor key. And if you like, I can play you a short excerpt of that, which people will recognize as the Draycott theme. So this is a little bit, I'll just play a little snippet of, of the original here. here. Here we go. much more somber why would it sound it sounds more sad is that because it's in a minor key yes so i just transposed it into a major key and this is what the result of that was it's in i say so if it was in c minor this would now be in e flat but this is the major version now that people are more familiar with It's much jollier, isn't it? It's much lighter and happier. Yeah. So there you go. So that's how the music developed. And then I I added various bits and pieces on top of that. Some strings, some flute and a a bass guitar, I think, as well. And also, Hugh, you've done our... Well, you've done loads and loads of things. You've done our talk local theme tune. You've also done our Christmas specials as well, which have always been great fun and people have always loved and had Father Christmas at the end going, ho, ho, ho. Yes, that's right. I specialise in Father Christmas voices. Well, well, that one voice, actually. Well, if anybody wants to get hold of Hugh for any kind of Christmas voices, then you can contact us through Drake Art Diaries. Hugh, with your permission... May we, for our end tune for this special episode, play the original bark? Yes, yes. I'll I'll, um, muster up a version for you and uh, make it sound pretty if I can. Well, Hugh, we, we understand that. Thank you so much for talking to us today. And that is goodbye to Drake Opdaris for this 50th episode. There are so many thank yous. It's the whole of the team. So frankly, I'm not going to name every name because otherwise we'll tie ourselves in knot. But thank you for listening to 50 episodes, for staying with us. And we will keep going as long as there are interesting life stories out there. And we know there are many. So stay safe, everybody. And we'll see you in a month's time. And here comes the original version of what we now know as the Draycott Diaries theme tune. You did say the check was in the post, didn't you? It just hasn't arrived yet. You know, we're, we're what, two years, three years down the line? Yeah, I know it's three years, Hugh. Look, can we talk about this when I turn the recording off?